Greetings. I'm Josh Tyson, co-author of the first best-selling book about conversational AI, Age of Invisible Machines. The book explores the learnings of conversational AI veteran and OneReach.AI CEO Rob Wilson. Each week, Rob and I bring in a guest to continue the conversation we began in the pages of our book. This week on the Invisible Machines podcast, we're talking about why even in an automated world, people won't stop performing rote activities, how much of creativity hinges on real human effort, and designing a future where technology improves the quality of our decision-making and reduces burnout. Our guest is Gloria Mart. Gloria is the professor of informatics at University of California, Irvine, and for decades, she's been studying technology use in real-world environments she describes as living laboratories. Her book, Attention Span, looks for ways that we can live with and use technology while maintaining a healthy psychological balance. She's been featured on NPR's Hidden Brain, The Ezra Klein Show, and CBS Sunday Morning, and we are thrilled to bring you this fascinating conversation with Gloria Mark. Gloria, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We are we are really, really excited for this conversation. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and Rob, a uh, pleasure as always seeing you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Gloria, you've done incredible research into human attention and really your findings and your thinking have opened a lot of doors of thought for us. So we thought to start off that we could just kind of ask sort of a foundational question, I guess. Um, what is all this technology in our lives doing to our attention? Well, it's, it's not an easy, straightforward question to answer. Um, I mean, one of the things it's doing is it's uh, it's getting us stressed and exhausted yeah. because you know we're uh, we have access to more information now than we've ever had before historically, and we have more access to people as well. And so, whenever we w enter the digital world, that's the metaphor I'd like to think about. We become immersed in just a sea of possibilities of finding information, connecting with people. And, um, you know, on the one hand, it's it's great, right? It's wonderful. But on the other hand, there's also a lot of pressures. People report being exhausted. Uh, one of the things that I found in my research is that people tend to switch their attention a lot. There's lots of reasons for that. But, you know, we switch between tabs between applications between devices and whenever we switch our attention like that it it adds to stress and uh -huh. it impacts our ability to pay attention so you know it sort of like chips away at our attention because instead of having this kind of continuity of thought about what you're looking at you know there's a lot of disruptions in it and every time we turn our attention to some new piece of content, we have to reorient our attention. And just to go a little bit uh, further into this, I also like to use the metaphor that people have a tank of cognitive resources, right? You have a good night's sleep, which is not so common. But imagine you do, you wake up, you have a full tank of cognitive resources. You can think of it as attentional capacity. And then as the day wears on, these resources slowly drain, right? If something requires hard focus or you have a conflict with some someone, all of these things drain your resources. And then slowly throughout the day, right, you have less and less in your tank mm. that you can is use it, to pay attention. Is it literally calories? Like, is it at a neuroscience level, like, is it, is it calories? Is it dopamine? Is it? No, it's, uh, I mean, there is a neuroscience basis to this, this theory of having a tank of cognitive resources. And um, it has to do with blood flow in the brain. And that appears to be a metabolic index of how cognitive resources are being used. So okay. if people are in a laboratory and they're focused for a long period of time, they can actually detect changes in the blood flow. 
And this is theorized to indicate that people's cognitive resources are being expended. We also know from a performance perspective that the longer people are performing a task, and these are studies that have been done for decades in laboratory research, that performance degrades. Right. right? And there needs to be an explanation. Why would performance degrade if you're doing something? Why, Why wouldn't it get better? You know, sometimes it does, but if it's a hard task, uh, it's the idea that we have a limited set of cognitive or attentional resources, and th- and these are being used up, right. right? By paying attention to this this task. It sounds like too what you're what you're saying is like some of these like rote tasks that we do over and over again. We maybe start paying less and less attention to, um, which is sort of a central idea to I I think the way that that we've kind of positioned technology or at least how we'd like to see it evolve to where if you start, you know, letting AI automate some of these tedious tasks that kind of take up a lot of people's days, they have more space to kind of interact hopefully with other people. Um, and then there's also this idea of kind of pogo sticking between apps, as you were describing, like moving from Slack to email to social media to a web browser. Uh, conversational AI kind of provides opportunities to where you know, we could just have people could just kind of have a single conversational interface. Could be a rich web chat, whip, <laughs> a rich uh, web chat <laughs> uh, window that they uh, that they type into, or something the speaker that they actually speak to, and that they could almost have like conversation uh, AI as an ally that could kind of help them find the information they need without having to jump around a bunch of different windows. Um, so, I, I don't know if you if you've thought about that technology in those terms, but do you think there might be opportunity, opportunities for AI to kind of declutter our lives a little bit? I know there's right now there's a, a very founded fear of it kind of adding more clutter with generative AI kind of churning out a lot of uh, text and artwork. But we feel like there might be an opportunity to kind of flip the script. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, certainly I think it can declutter our minds. Um, but the question is, um, will it free up extra time for us? Or is AI just simply going to produce more information that people are going to have to process? And, you know, we we have a limited capacity to process information. And, you know, there's a bottom there. So AI can produce all this information, but there's ultimately a bottleneck limitation of how much humans can can comprehend and take in. And so then the argument is, well, let's have AI agents talk with each other and then just that the human gets pulled out of the loop. Well, that's fine. But then the human is really uh, separate from the information. We don't, we're not in touch with what that information is. So I think that people do need to still be in touch with that information, but the the danger I worry about is that so much information will be produced that ultimately, you know, humans are going to have a hard time keeping uh, up, right. understanding, keeping up with it. Yeah. Yeah. I like, uh, we we're big fans of this idea of human in the loop that, you know, at least allowing two AIs to talk, but us being able to observe the conversation and moderate and ultimately overrule or decide is is important um but to your point i think a lot about like the future the more like immediate future of ai with human and live which i think will be an integral part of that because we we do want to be in the loop and i don't and and i think we're making that clear by even um you know instituting laws around it right now already so this is Seems very clear. This is this is what humanity wants um, to be in the loop, but I I almost Im- imagine like this day. Your day is just decision, decision, decision. And I think about what you're saying, which is like the Obama like having two suits, the gray and the blue one, so that it, he doesn't he doesn't waste any cognitive load on a decision that doesn't matter. So he saves it all, and it's clear that he's aware of his own limitation, which. You know, it's very easy for me to to pattern recognize here and say it feels it looks a lot like physical. It's a muscle and it feels a lot like 
we physically only can do so much in a day before becoming exhausted. It's caloric. It's it's a lot of things that ultimately um, add up to being tired, and and the more tired we are, the less we are able to function. You know, if you're if you're doing like a hundred squats, and then I ask you to walk a tightrope, that's going to be way harder than you know waking up early in the morning and trying to do it with fresh legs. And so it right. seems that that it, it feels very similar to me, even though if physiologically it's different, it feels very similar. It's like it's like we're in the coal mines for our brain and cognitively now. Like before we were actually in the coal mines and we were exhausted and and we had to shorten our day so that we could rest our bodies and and now we're in like the cognitive coal mine. And I'm a little worried that we're with human in the loop um, and the AI's ability to just get the thunking, which, you know, I'm using somebody else's term, but I heard, I I, 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 I forget what your term is for thunking, but it's the, the routine tasks that don't take a cognitive load that help us recover. What did you call yeah. that? You, um, road, you, road activity. Yeah, road activity. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I, f- I forgot that term. Um, that that if we remove the rote activities from our day, then we're just going from cognitive decision to cognitive decision to cognitive decision, exhausting ourselves, being like, oh my God, this is like worse than the coal mine. This is, you know, breaking our brains. And if we're going to do this eight hours, like what is, you know, are, are we all just going to be depressed because we just, we're, we're like slaves, you know, building the pyramids. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm going too dark here, but that's th- that's my fear. Is is not that AI intentionally does anything wrong. It's that that it just it ends up becoming such a you know such a case of no more no more rote activities, no more recovery, um, and just back to back decision making. Yeah, I I worry less about that because I think that humans. Just if we have a desire to do road activity, I, I don't think people would stop doing that. Um, why do we do it? Because it relaxes us. Uh, my research shows that people are happiest when they do road activity. They're happier than when they do hard focused work because it's not stressful. Uh, I can relate road to activity, that. It, it plays a role for us. Because if you have if you have a hard problem and you're just, you know, churning it over and over in your mind, if you step back from that problem uh, and even doing something, some simple kind of road activity, the problem is still churning in the back of your mind and it's still, it's incubating. Yeah. And then that's why when we go back to a problem after stepping away, sometimes the solution seems seems quite yeah. yeah. So I don't I don't think people would stop road activity. I think our desire to do simple, easy, engaging activity is just too strong. Uh good. Yeah, my, my life's improved ever since I got uh, a cordless vacuum. Like I'm always just like if I if I have a problem that I'm trying to figure out in my head and I just wander around the house, you know, vacuuming up piles of dog hair, it doesn't take long before I've kind of arrived at the answer which points to something that we Rob and I were kind of talking about before this call that like you know we were talking a bit about kind of AI sort of designing our schedules for us maybe but there's also this element of do we want them to like lighten the load in this current paradigm that we live in or should we also be thinking about ways that we could use AI to kind of build a new model for productivity where we're not kind of feeling like you know we're 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 keeping busy just to show off for someone for a superior or something like that, you know, where it's, it's a little more balanced and there's more of a focus on the quality of work over the quantity and those kind of things. I think, I think that's the real challenge in, in the age of, uh, open AI is what, what's the best way to utilize humans skills and, and human reasoning and, and what's the best way to integrate with AI. And I think it's it's going to take some time for us to figure that out. And there's going to be new skills 
that need to be developed. For example, skills in prompts. You know, some people are better skilled at entering prompts than others. Even for search engines, I was surprised. I thought everyone knows how to use search engines. But uh, it turns out they, they don't. Some people are better than others. So I think uh, it's a skill to be developed. It's also going to be a skill to figure out how much AI can be integrated into work, right? It's also going to be a skill to be able to um, figure out hallucinations from AI. You know, do, should we just blindly trust it and accept it, or should we be really diligent in checking it? So there's there's a lot of new ways of thinking that are going to be needed to be developed. Yeah, we uh, had you, this. Oh, go ahead, Rob. I, I was just going to say, you talk a, a lot about de like designing your day, like being sort of more intentional about your at attention. Um, and I think I'm, I'm caught up on it because uh, in some ways I almost think like studying attention is like the meaning of life in a way. <laughs> you know, everything rolls up to attention uh, and what you're doing and how you're feeling in, in any given moment and what you're paying attention to and your idea of, you know, um, designing by intention, like designing your day in advance. Um, it brings me back to a project. I was hired a long time ago by a company this was pre-Facebook, where they actually, it was a scrapbooking company that was like the largest scrapbooking company um, in the world in terms of like selling scrapbook materials and stuff. And they sort of saw that, you know, their business model was being disrupted potentially by the internet because people were not creating physical scrapbooks anymore. They were doing this in a digital form and they were trying to figure out how to, you know, conserve that revenue, which whole other interesting concept like why they never became Facebook was because they tried to make money you know and that they you know it was all money based but when I did the project and we did our research and we 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 got to dig into the this scrapbooking community and and what was scrapbooking about and 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 you know why did people do it and and what engaged them with it and it turned out that the number one reason had nothing to do with sharing as much as we thought uh, it, it that was the number two reason but the number one reason had to do with the fact that when you whenever you design a page you begin to proactively think of what you want the next page to be the number one takeaway from our research was that um, that the designing of your scrapbook page wasn't about the reflecting back, but it became about uh, imagining what you want the next page to be and then Maybe. living your day to end up with the page that you want. And so you, it became, scrapbooking was lost. It wasn't a thing that was this artistic endeavor as much as it had more meaning and it was about living life intentionally and trying to create the next page to be the page you're proud of. And so they would plan events, imagining the photos that they would be able to take and then, and the trinkets they would be able to add to their scrapbook. And it was so interesting to me to see the value of scrapbooking had nothing to do with the scrapbook and everything to do with what you talk about, which is being proactive with, about designing your experience for your day or the next day. Um, and that being like a, a, an interim ant you know, let's say management of of the world we live in, knowing that we can't just shut all the devices off. Yeah. No, I, I really love that. And, and I love what you started with when you said attention is really about life. I think of William James, who's considered the father of psychology. And he talks about attention in the sense of um, it's what we consciously uh, pay pay attention to. So there's this volition, this conscious effort involved in choosing what to pay attention to. And um, 
according to William James, right, everything we pay attention to becomes part of our lived experience. And so it's really important what we selectively choose to pay attention to. Um, the, the other thought that comes to mind when you spoke about how um, in these scrapbooking communities, people think about what they want their life to be, right? As, and these images are representing to them aspects of their lives. I think about the, the idea of forethought, that imagining our future selves. And so, you know, we tend to just be so embedded in what we're doing now and we're stressed and we can't figure out, you know, what's the next step of this current project. But if you really jump ahead and you think a little bit into the future and you imagine what that future ideally should look like, that can help you guide what you do in the present. Yeah. So, you know, if I'm struggling with deadlines and, you know, I've got emails that, you know, people are expecting me to answer and I've got, you know, four different deadlines and I'm juggling back and forth between them. If I think ahead and imagine what my end of day is going to look like, what, how do I want to be at the end of the day? Or how do I want to be at the end of the week? Uh, and, you know, I imagined I want to be relaxed. I want to feel fulfilled. Um, but also emotionally, how do I want to feel? Right. And that's part of it, too. Right. And that can help this kind of future thinking, even at not very far ahead, you know, the right. end of the day, end of the week, can help inform what we do now and uh, help yeah. us make better choices now. So it's it's really about what we pay attention to, being selective and knowing that all of this is going to contribute to experience that comprises who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one little tidbit that was interesting is um, that the the further that they looked forward, and this is something that we had learned more through the research than actually watching, um, the further they looked forward about their future self, the more altruistic it was for them, meaning it was as if they were planning someone else's life. And hey. the less motivated they were to do anything in the mean meanwhile, because it wasn't for their present self, it was for someone else. And that that the next day, like there was a window of like of like time for planning that was more motivating because it was their present self versus like someone else, their future self. Um and that was just sort of interesting and it just just wanted to share that. Where what I want to circle back to though is like instead of AI planning our days for us and designing our days for us like nanny AI, um, I it makes me think it's that the more immediate term value isn't just maybe interrupting us, so to speak, to to force us to do that planning. Like maybe it's just a a coach. Like it's like is it be like having you know you on speed dial every morning? Like okay. <laughs> I'm going to walk you through like let's let's design your day and and it's almost like making an AI of you that everyone could spend 15 minutes or throughout the day and just and you remind them of like don't forget how how do you want your day to look and this Josh comes back to you know some of the research that was done in our company around journaling um I was just thinking of that yeah yeah and how uh getting folks to journal from a mental health standpoint was so valuable, but not only that, but like the AI's job was to summarize their journals um, and then say it back to them in a more positive way so that they could feel better about their day and, and not worse. And that the way we, we write, if we're in a negative mode, we may, journal towards a negative spin on our day but that if something read it back to us but 
took a positive spin on it. It's still truthful, but a positive spin on it. It was amazing how much more positive the results were and how helpful that was Ooh. to folks. And so I'm just thinking like having like this AI coach versus nanny, right? Um, and and maybe that would be like a great place to start with AI. I don't know. What are your thoughts? No, I, I totally agree. And um, in fact, I, I write about having an AI agent as a coach. It's exactly that, what what I talk about. Um, I do believe that people, we humans should be the ones that plan our days. And I see AI as being support to coach us, right? right? To, to help us understand what our peak attention times are, when are the times that we need a break, What's the right task fit for the amount of tension we have? This is something that AI could certainly help us with. But there's there are a few reasons why we should be designing our own days. And one of those is, you know, we, we would be more committed to following that plan if we designed it mm, ourselves that's rather so than true. having an, an external agent do it. Because... We're always more committed when we make our own decisions, right? Uh -huh. And another thing is it empowers people to be able to, you know, figure out what you should be doing when, rather than just completely offloading it to some, you know, external agent. So I, I think that's that's really important. Yeah. Um, well, that points to like... Uh, uh a great value of conversational AI is that the technological barriers are lowered now so that it's yeah. it's totally designable, uh, an experience where someone collaborates with an AI to kind of create their optimal schedule. And that schedule yeah. changes daily in response to yeah. things that they have coming up. And then there's also like this, one thing that I wanted to mention about that journaling research that Rob mentioned was that uh, the people who participated, a lot of them had saved this, the little summaries uh, that were given back to them by the AI and considered them precious because they had actually, yeah. the, that more positive spin on whatever they put in their journal kind of became their new reality. So there is, and obviously that that is clearly a double-edged sword, but there is that power too, that like not only could, could these AIs be helping us make better use of our time, they could make us feel better about what we're doing, you know, where, where it would be appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And, and that's fascinating. I also see another value for people designing their own day is that they would learn from it. Right. Right. So I'm a big believer of people doing things themselves. We learn from our mistakes. We learn from our successes. If we offload everything to a piece of software, right? We're, we're not going to learn from that. Yeah. And that software, this AI is going to tell us, here's, here's what you should be doing at this time and this time and this time. We're not going to learn why this is important. But if we do it ourselves, right, and we have an AI coaching us to say, well, you know, consider that you've got a lot of attentional resources at this time, Consider that, you know, you've got this and this task that could benefit from a lot of attention. And then, you know, it would help us make better choices. We would learn. We would begin to um, understand a lot more deeply about how our own attention works. So, uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of outsourcing everything yeah. to AI. You mentioned earlier, before we got started here, that you have an article coming out to talk more about like sort of creativity and how it relates to this. And um, I, I, I don't know how exactly with them making a connection in my mind between like, if I design my day, that's creative. If AI designs my day, is that creative? I don't think so. Um, and, and how that crosses over with this article, I'm not exactly sure, but there feels to be <laughs> like there's some connection here <laughs> between between the idea that it inspires me to create my day, that's me creating. It created it for me. That's that's not creativity. And I, I don't know. What are your thoughts? It, 
Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a, a basic connection there that, um, you know, we can be creative in many different ways, right? We can be creative if you're doing a painting, if you're writing a poem, uh, but we can also be creative in, in planning things, you know, planning an event or even planning your day. Um, when, I, when I was uh, writing about creativity, and this is actually in, uh, for a Substack post that uh, will probably appear by the time your episode comes out, Great. was actually in response to a very interesting event. So um, in mid-January, there was a Japanese author who won a very prestigious award in Japan for best work of fiction for new writer. And her book was called The Tokyo Tower of Sympathy. Well, what's unusual about this award was that she used ChatGPT in writing the book. Now, she used it for about 5% of the writing, and she faithfully quoted the AI output in the novel. Yeah. So, I mean, this is like we're entering a new frontier here, and of course, you know, there's a number of different entities that are not in favor of this, like the Writers Guild of America, right? Um, the New York Times. But, you know, the the ship has sailed and we're using AI in, in so many uh, ways. But, but the question I'm asking is, um, can, can a work of art, wh whether it's a novel or a poem, or painting, uh, can it be considered creative if AI is used for part of it or all of it? And you know, what about just issuing a command and asking AI to rewrite a checkoff play, right? Will and and if the output seems to be very creative, does that make it creative? And would so, the impact be different, like even even if humans performed it? Like, would that somehow come through the 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 AI ness of it? <laughs> well, that's that's exactly my point. Yeah. So you know, I was I was originally trained as an artist, and when I would look at a painting, say a Rembrandt painting, what struck me about the painting was that I could understand the the effort that Rembrandt went into that painting. I I could see what Rembrandt was envisioning because it comes across on the canvas. And so there's the humanness in that art that, that for me, makes it creative. And so a lot of this is about what is really disclosed about how that piece of art is created. So if it's disclosed, and I think, I think that's really central that there needs to be disclosure, if it's disclosed that this AI work, let's say a rewritten Chekhov play, uh, occurred simply from a command that was issued, right? Um, and if I knew that, then I, I would not perceive that work as being creative because it lacks the human effort. And so for me, what's really central is knowing that there's humanness that's involved in the production of that work. Yeah, yeah. My, my oldest son is a is a jazz musician, so we we kind of talk about this a lot in the house. But like, you know, there, there's AI that can do jazz improvisation. But I, it's hard to imagine a scenario where anyone would want to pay to go watch that happen. Uh, <laughs> he had a a concert the other night where it was hard for me to even like speak because I was I was overcome with emotion because he was up there essentially telling stories about his life through song and but part of me wonders if if this saturation of kind of generative content uh you know in certain areas it'll it'll diminish probably the overall quality of, of written works out in the world but it might also yeah. create more of an appetite for these authentically uh human experiences of like li watching live music or seeing like an actual painting where where yeah. it, it is kind of yeah. two perspectives on this one is the idea that we is it the painting or the story that we're paying for 
you know, is it that humans love paintings or that humans love stories? And, um, and so, so we, we're buying the story and if the story's a lie, right? If somebody makes up a story that's not true about how the painting came to be, that, and then we buy that story and that's a false story, we feel cheated. The same way that someone might write a fictional book and say it's a true story and we would feel cheated. Um, like you lied, it's a deception. And mm-hmm. and a deception is is not a good idea. We don't feel good about being deceived. And so if if you disclose it's an AI and the painting has no good story other than somebody who wanted to make money pressed a button, I don't want that painting because I don't like that story because I'm I need a story, you know, beyond just a thing. And and if I'm just looking to th- throw a picture up somewhere to hide a hole in the wall, then maybe I will buy an AI because it's not I don't really care. And but I but I definitely agree with you. I need to know. I will feel deceived if if told a lie about how that painting came to be because I mean, I'll tell other people that story and they'll turn me into a liar essentially. <laughs> Uh, yeah, our our um, I think our perception of what makes something creative has to do with the degree to which we can identify with the process right. of how this thing is produced. So you know, when I hear a John Coltrane piece, I I can imagine him behind it, him playing it, and I can imagine just the the brilliance in his mind. Um, and I discovered he has this amazing ability to be able to keep tempo. Even if he veers off and does improvisation, he can come right back and pick up the tempo, which is just, you know, and, and of course, AI would be able to do the same thing. But when we hear that a human is behind it, right, and we understand that there there's something about yeah. that, that we really identify with. And to me, that makes the creativity much more profound. Yeah. Right. There's a story you guys might know better than I do about a um, it's a pretty famous documentary out there about a winemaker that um, basically was able to disguise old wines. You know, he's able to replicate old wines and then sell them. Um, and they were so accurately created that they themselves were a work of art right because they were they were so accurate to what the original wine was but he still went to jail right <laughs> um and and his rationale was well if the if the end person couldn't tell then is it wrong and of course i think the court said yeah <laughs> because eventually they did find out <laughs> and that's the problem is you can't guarantee they won't find out. And so, yes, it's wrong. And yes, you're going to jail. And I can't help but think this is exactly the same thing. It's fine if AI creates art so long as you tell us that that's what it is. But if you sell me on a story that somebody overcame adversity in as being a minority in a really you know difficult situation and ends up being a musician at a level that supersedes almost any other musician or many others and then I get to hear them and go wow like that I I don't want to find out that that was an AI <laughs> that's that's not yeah. okay and you should go to jail if you if you sell I mean, me what, his album what what worries me is that we will AI will become so often used in producing art that we simply become inured to the fact that it's produced by a machine and so I, I don't want us to lose touch with the human quality that goes into art, the human effort, right? And it's, it's that identification with that yeah. human thinking process that really makes something creative. And I don't want us to forget yeah. that. And, and that's what worries me is that, sure, we... I, I can imagine, um, you know, people will start to pay really big money for paintings produced by AI. Right. And uh, they simply lose touch with 
the fact that uh, you know what where was the process the yeah. human process involved? Yeah, I feel in this? like the novelty hopefully we- might wear off quickly. I can remember kind of early in the generative AI wave, there was a series. I don't know if it was the same person doing them, but people were releasing these fake trailers to make to Wes Anderson versions of like popular movies. So there was like Wes Anderson's Star Wars. And the first one I saw was it it seemed quite novel and it was really funny and it was kind of fascinating to watch. But then, you know, after two or three of them, the the note had gone sour. And I I am hopeful that maybe that could happen too, that it seems inevitable just given the way that kind of the mechanics of Hollywood work, right? And like how formulaic certain storytelling approaches are that that AI won't be folded into the mix. But I wonder if there will be kind of a rejection of of the output because it might have like a weird sense to it almost like you can, like sometimes I can tell like when people have sent me emails that were written by, a, you know, generative AI. Uh, so I wonder but if maybe, pe- yeah. People become used to things, right? Yeah. And we, we tend to like what we're familiar with. And so people may end up just accepting it because it's familiar. It's, you know, it's part, our, it will become part of our culture. Yeah. When I, I guess then it also becomes quickly part of this thing that we're trying to debug, right? It's just another thing competing for our attention. If, if all it takes to make a two hour movie is to like feed a paragraph prompt into an AI, yeah. then it's not, you know, we're going to be flooded with, and it might be personalized movies. You might get get on some sort of newsletter where every day you're getting a new movie starring you fed to you. And like, how do you, how do you break away from something like yeah. that? Yeah, it certainly saves companies money, so they're <laughs> they're incentivized to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing if you think about. Maybe it's just a phase, right? Or in some in some cases, it's a phase. Like, you think about the the Rolex watch. And then you think about the status symbol of owning and wearing a Rolex watch. And then you go to counterfeit Rolexes just being sold everywhere. And then everyone suddenly wearing a Rolex watch. And now, did counterfeiting replace? We still need the story. It's It wasn't the same. It isn't. It didn't take off and ruin the watch, you know? We still care about craftsmanship, but there was that moment where we could fool people from a status symbol standpoint, um, which didn't, which I don't know if you want to call that art appreciation. That's like a whole another episode probably to talk (laughs) about whether that counts as art appreciation. Um, But there's something about status that once there's no status attached to it anymore because you can't tell you know, what, what the original is that almost we go back to the Rolex. I mean, it's still around, but it has less status around it now. And now we see that people just, it, it, the Swatch watch comes out and now we want uniqueness. You know, we don't want counterfeit status symbols. So it it seems like it sort of takes the status away and then... Uh, and then we circle back to that creativity and uniqueness being what matters and maybe not everyone re- wearing a Rolex to say, look how successful I am, but now now we want the watch that matches our personality. I don't know. It just seems like there is maybe an element of of just temporariness to all of this that we're just going to not value art in the same way in the future, but we're going to buy the art that we you know, like the most. Well, the liking is very subjective. And I, I'm sure there are people that would like AI-produced work and would probably pay a lot of money for it. Um, I would hope that's not the case. I would hope that human-produced art would still, uh, uh, you know, be worth uh, money and people would value it but uh yeah it's you know culture changes culture influences our perceptions of things ai is all around us and so there's you know just think of it as um just 
a huge wave that we're being engulfed in. And of course, it's going to affect the way we view things. Actually, I found this quote yesterday. A friend was recommending that I read some Douglas Hofstadter, uh, and he wrote a book called Metamagical Themas. He had this <laughs> quote, uh, in this day and age, how can anyone fascinated by creativity and beauty fail to see in computers the ultimate tool for exploring their essence? Uh, which I guess that quote kind of feels like we've already discussed it <laughs> to the to the marrow perhaps, but but there is this notion that, and I think it actually plays into what we were talking about. Like if you are uh, co-creating with an AI to design your optimal day, uh, that has sort of the flavors of art in a way. Like we, we've had conversations on this podcast. Actually, we should definitely introduce you to Laura Herman, who's been a guest on this podcast. She uh, works with Adobe and is a researcher at Oxford, but we spent a lot of time talking about how important story is, uh, you know, to the art that's being produced. Um, and then about the idea of like conversation in and of itself is almost a form of art because oh, I'm saying definitely. something and you're, you're formulating a response and we're having this exploration. So it's almost like, uh, it, it could have art like qualities, right? Like using AI constructively and collaboratively to kind of create your optimal schedule, which is in essence like creating the kind of attention you want to have, there there could be an artistic mm -hmm. element to that, I suppose. What, what do you think about that? I think so. I, I think there could be. Um, yeah. So as long as the human is is involved and the human is not left out, but the, the human, there is, you're talking about a kind of co-construction with the machine and the human producing the day. And how that co-construction appears uh, could could be an art, you know. To what ex how is the human guiding the AI to help them produce their day, design their day? So definitely, I think there there could be art involved in that. Yeah, but I guess it feels like to get there too, we kind of need to break free from sort of the hamster wheel of productivity that's been baked into our our work lives and our professional lives. Um, and, and that there, might be... There is that, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we we are told that, you know, we're, we're, we live in this culture where producing, you know, and it's a lot of it is based on quantity and not quality. But the more we produce, the better it is. Let's push ourselves to our limits we're given tools, after all, to help our productivity. We're given computers and an AI that can help us push ourselves to the limit. But what's being left out here is is our well-being, right? That's being neglected. And, you know, as I talked about earlier, that, you know, the human mind is still a bottleneck, right? There's just a limit to what humans can do. And when we, you know, exceed uh, the limits of what our capacity is, um, that's where we get stressed, we get exhausted, we get burned out. And so we're being pushed to the edge. And that's why there is so much burnout and stress that people are experiencing. In fact, you know, stress is at an all-time high. Uh, burnout and exhaustion is very common. And um, managers and companies need to realize that because it's actually more expensive for them when employees are burned out. They, you know, there's absenteeism, of course, but there's also um, a lack of presenteeism. In other words, even if you show up at work, but you're stressed and exhausted, you're not going to perform at your best. You're not going to be motivated. You're not going to be engaged. So you're just burned out. So, so yeah, I think we need to rethink this whole culture of just pushing productivity and pushing people to their limit. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like so much of our identities are kind of wound up in, in how much we can accomplish in our lives. Uh, Rob and I were kind of talking about, I guess it was Steve Jobs the other day and how 
I think at the end of his life and he had the terminal terminal illness, he was able to kind of do some reflecting. And it, from what I remember, kind of his last keynote or presentation that he gave, the the main takeaway was like, I, I blew it. Like I should have spent more time with my family. And he's someone who I think a lot of people point to as like kind of a, a, a god of, of productivity or of like, you know, getting the most out of your life, right? Like he created so many groundbreaking things, but at the end of it, his realization was like, I, I misspent my energy. My attention was squarely focused in the wrong area. And that's, it's, it's a, it's a strange jagged pill to swallow, I guess, because were the things that he released on the world, what we actually needed, right? Like we're, we're kind of in a moment, uh, Gloria was hinting at it. Like we're more stressed than we've ever been. Everyone seems stretched thin. Uh, our, our lifestyles seem utterly unsustainable from both like a macro and a micro level. Yeah. The cognitive coma. Yeah. Like can, (laughs) can, could like the simple act of using AI to kind of reframe our, our attention have downstream effects of like maybe initiating some of the systemic change that, that I think is probably necessary to really have like a healthy relationship with work and a healthy relationship between humans and our environment. So I, I think there's a premise built into AI that is going to help us uh, achieve more, be more productive. But what what if there were a different premise built into AI, which is how can it help us be um, more peaceful, have have greater well-being? Yeah. How how can it get us to improve our lives and be less exhausted? So you know, what about changing that premise? And, you know, having an AI as a coach is a really good start. But the coach with the goal of, you know, helping people, making people's lives, um, not not pushing us in a direction toward burnout, basically. And I, and I think that that's not really carefully thought out at this point. I think the, you know, from... What I've been seeing, the the visions are, you know, helping produce more reports and uh-huh. more analyses and, uh, you know, more documents. Um, but what about helping people, right? Helping us improve our well-being. Yeah, that's a critical piece of it. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, it's hard to talk about attention and all of this without redefining work in some way because, you know, it's where a lot of our time is and attention is spent. So how do you not say, well, if if it's broken, so is work, then therefore work is broken. Um, and then you go, great, what is work and what is fixed look like and why do we work? And I, I always end up back at, like, the simple the simple explanation that work is like where we get paid to help others and that the more valuable that is perceived in the world by others, the more we get paid. Um, and that that's a great spin on it, but then at what cost to yourself um, and and how do you strike that balance? And And this is where I kind of think about companies being like, you know, they're order of things are shareholder first, customer second, employee last. Um, so so the ship so so employees there to make the shareholder happy first, then the customer, and then they're at the end of the line, right? Which feels a lot like my perception of what it's like to be a mom. You know, like you you you're the last one in the rung. Um, which then just whole another episode again gets into like you're really at the end if you're a mom because you're like after you've taken care of the customer then it's the family then it's, it's like you're so far back at the end of the line that you get nothing for yourself right. and as a mom you're and also I, not appreciated and you're blamed for everything right and and like no wonder like, like is that is it not what we do, but just the order of which we like? Why, why shareholders first? Um, why not employees first, customer second, shareholder third? Like, why not like take care of yourself? And a happy employee will make for a happy customer, which will make for 
a happy, you know, is it possible that it's not like the design of work that's broken, but the value, like the system that we have for putting shareholders at the front of the line and, you know, putting moms at the back of the line and then, you know, workers somewhere in the middle. I mean, it's, I don't know. And again, it's a whole nother avenue to go down, but is it possible to redesign your workday when the premise, as you said, is wrong? Yeah, it's a it's a challenge. Um, we we need a, a sea change in our work culture, and the sea change is to completely change our framing about how we perceive work, and to put well being first and foremost, and then productivity will follow. Because there, there is a lot of work in psychology that shows that when people feel positive, when, they, when their well-being is good, they will produce more. They will be more creative. But it's hard for people to be creative when, when they're stressed and, and when they're burned out. And that's where a lot of uh, employees are at. And, um, you know, I speak with, with a lot of people, a lot of knowledge workers who report that they're just at the end of their ropes. They, they feel pulled in all different directions. And, and, of course, they have to satisfy their bosses. They have personal right. lives that they have to deal with. But, but there are carryover effects because when you leave work, you know, you don't have the resources to be able to deal in your yeah. personal life. So, yeah. I was going to ask you, like, in this chain of, like, of priority, you know, prioritizing others um, and and cognitive load and going, like, there is there a good cognitive load because it's, it's for yourself and it's what you want to do and it's your prediction and you're trying to see if, like it's your creativity versus the cognitive load of of doing something at the service of others um at, that maybe aren't going to appreciate it like you said like it's there's a quality of load that could give us more energy and that when it's i mean just you know exerting that energy for something that doesn't that you're not going to be appreciated for and doesn't benefit you at all. Like, this is what's in it for you, right? Like, nothing. Um, does that take a heavier tax yeah, on us? Of course it does. Because when when we do things that we're internally motivated to do, intrinsically motivated, right, we have so much more energy, so much more cognitive energy to do it. We We are empowered when we can make our own decisions decide on our own course. And, you know, sure, we'll make mistakes, but that's okay because we're the ones responsible for the mistakes. We can learn from that. But when we're being told what we need to do, right, where where is the empowerment, right? We, we don't, right. and it, it also, it, it eats into the commitment that we have for doing something because it's, you know, we're, someone else's decision about what we right. should do. Yeah, we had an earlier conversation um, in a, a, a podcast with Lisa Barrett, and she talks about, you know, our brains are, are, are prediction machines, generally. We just go from one prediction to the next. Um, and, of course, I can't help but internalize that myself and think, yeah, and and time for me is about, like, the degree in which I can't wait to see if I'm right or if I'm wrong. And, um, and, and happiness is like when I'm unexpectedly, when things are unexpectedly more positive than I expected. And uh, I'm unhappy when things turn out less uh, positively than I expected. And, and so expectations are really just predictions and in this chain of predictions that I do all day and see if I'm right. But when someone else tells you to do something, it's their prediction, not your prediction. 
And so there's no interest to see if they're right or wrong or less interest. Like we want to know if our own predictions are right or wrong. That's what moves us through life. That's what gets us in the zone. Proving someone else's predictions probably gets them in the zone, <laughs> but not us in the zone. Yeah. I don't know if you if you have thoughts yeah, around well, that I'm, I'm idea of prediction and how it falls to into it. The discussion about AI. So imagine that AI is telling us what tasks we should be doing. And it's also evaluating these tasks and saying, you know, here's what you did right, here's what you did wrong. That certainly is is very different than if we have, you know, through our own volition, make choices about what we want to do. Right. So, you know, I am in favor of having AI guide us or give us the information we need to make better decisions about what we should do, how we should perform work. But I'm really right. totally against having AI yeah. uh, do the work for us or rather dictate to us how we should be doing our work. Yeah. Well, to your point earlier, we tend to predict um, and then we, we get excited when we're right. Um, and no one's... Yeah, and and it, you know your point around thunking or you know rote tasks is it's something we have to do to be human. There's no one's going to take that away from us. We're going to keep doing it, and maybe that's the, we're going to keep predicting things ourselves, and we're going to keep wanting to know if we're right, and we're not going to offload this because because that's just what life is: is predicting the next thing and seeing if we're right. And it's not fun if the AI predicts it and we find out if the AI is right because the may as well just be another human being, maybe even worse. We don't care if it's right. It's just an AI. We don't even have a connection to it. So yeah, maybe maybe that's just something that we'll, we'll always want to predict because that's part of living and and we're not going to offload that stuff. That'd One be of nice. the AI's like really good at, if it becomes really deft at providing us with good choices, like especially I guess if you're if you're co, co-creating, co-botting, we've called it like, with an AI to help maximize your attention, uh, it's it's learning from you and it's giving you like ideally it could give you like the best possible options, but it's not telling you what to do. It's saying like you know today you wanted to accomplish these things. Here are a couple of like models for what your day could look like to get to that. And then that almost seems like it would have that effect you're talking about, Rob, where it's like you're you're predicting more or as much, but you're actually the incidences of the predictions being rewarding actually goes up a little bit because it's giving you like right. really well curated uh, summarizations of things and ideas about what you might want right. to do. So Yeah. If, if yeah. it can help us learn, right? Mm -hmm. So that we can learn ourselves about, you know, what our capabilities are, things we do that will lead mm -hmm. to success and failures, right? So by giving us more information, uh, can we learn better from it? Yeah. I guess we're about to find out, well, right? This is great. <laughs> yeah, this was a great conversation, guys. A, a lot to reflect on for me. I think what I like most is um, the the designing our experience and designing our day and taking that moment to do that. And then hopefully it turns out the way we, we want it to. I think it could be a big step in at least dealing with where we are today until yeah until these values or this sort of systemic change of valuing you know things in a valuing ourselves last <laughs> we can it's until that our, our our structure our society starts to create a little more balance between valuing ourselves you know i i, I think i'm speaking more for people down the down the food chain, you know, and companies, but yeah. There's a, there's a lot that goes great. into making a cultural change and, you know, we it proceeds step by step. And so we have right. to think about the small steps that we can take. So true. That makes perfect sense. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, right, Gloria. Thanks really for your time it. and thanks for joining us. And it was my pleasure. All right. Well, thanks again for joining this ongoing conversation about conversational AI. Be sure to subscribe to Invisible Machines wherever you get your podcasts. And if you feel so inclined, 
please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app. You can also watch these conversations on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. This podcast is produced for UX Magazine in partnership with OneReach.ai. Over the past five years, our team of nearly 200 engineers, scientists, experienced designers, anthropologists, and linguists have been developing Generative Studio X, an award-winning platform that has the lone distinction of being named a leader by every major analyst group. GSX is a complete environment for hosting, creating, analyzing, and scaling your own digital teammates called Intelligent Digital Workers. For an interactive demo of IDWs in action and to learn more about the GSX platform, head to OneReach.ai. This podcast would not be possible without the hard work and dedication of executive producer Elias Parker and producer Kate Timchenko. Our video and audio editor is Michael Litvinov, and we rely on support from the marketing team at OneReach.ai, including Allison Harshberger, Anastasia Nechtalio, and Vera Prokodko. Thanks again, and we look forward to connecting with you next week, right here on Invisible Machines.